Well, good morning, church family. I apologize, I've lost my voice, but I've got my water with lemon, so you'll just have to listen extra carefully this morning, right? All right, well, for the past several weeks, we have been walking through the book of Genesis. We've been following the life of Abraham, to whom God said, go, leave everything that's familiar, leave all your friends and family, and go to a land that I will show you some other time. And so God told him to set out on this journey when Abraham had no idea of the destination. And so throughout this road trip sermon series, we've been asking the question, how do you drive when you don't know where you're going? Well, today we're going to look at probably the most well-known incident in Abraham's life when God called Abraham on a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice his long-awaited son, Isaac. Now, if this is your first time to hear this story, I would imagine that your brain is exploding with questions. And we will get to those, I promise. And I picture Abraham's mind exploding with questions too. Why did I have to wait so long for this promised son just to give him up? Does God keep his promises? Is following God going to be worth what God is asking me to do? Now, I think Isaac's head was probably exploding with questions, too. And we'll get to some heavy stuff soon, but I wanted to start out a little bit light. So I found this satirical piece in the Babylon Bee that explores how Isaac must have dealt with this. Um, Here's a few quotes from the article. Most historians now believe that Isaac found excuses to avoid hikes, camping trips, and father-son wilderness outings with his dad after what the family delicately termed the incident. (laughs) And after that, the patriarch could only convince his son to spend time with him for indoor bonding experiences or outdoors if Isaac could verify where there would be plenty of witnesses. Researchers determined Isaac later went on to avoid all other father-son bonding experiences as well, but only because he had become a teenager and thought his dad was super lame. (laughs) All right, I think we could do another whole sermon on this same passage from Isaac's perspective, but today we're going to look at the experience through Abraham's eyes. Here's the thing. Abraham had waited so long for God's promises and God's blessing. And now he is literally being asked to place those on the altar. So the big question that Abraham has to answer is, can I trust God with everything? And this is a question we're going to ask ourselves today too. Can I trust God with everything? Can I let go of the blessings and trust God for the results? What if I see more trials than blessings? Would God be enough? What do I value more, the gifts or the giver? Now, as we dive into Abraham's story in Genesis 22 this morning, we're going to see that our trials reveal our treasures. And I hope we can go home today as we ask, can I trust God with everything? I hope we go home with a solid answer Whatever happens, 
God is enough. Whatever happens, whatever hardships we face, whatever blessings we might have to surrender, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. Whatever happens, God is enough. Now let's check out Abraham's story to see why. Would you open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 22? I'm going to read it to you, but I'd love to ask you to follow along. This is Genesis 22, 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac, And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. May God bless the reading of his word. Now the last church that I served before I came to VRBC was in a small town called Tullahoma, Tennessee. And it's not uncommon there to see someone walking around in a t-shirt that says, Yes, I am a rocket scientist. See, this small town was the home of Arnold Air Force Base. We have a picture here. And up until that point in time, this was before SpaceX, every rocket um, that went up in space had been tested there. So one of our church members who worked at Arnold Air Force Base offered Chris and me a behind-the-scenes tour And they had, at the time, the largest wind tunnel in the world. I think we have a picture of that, too. It contains some of the most powerful electric motors ever built. It was two stories high, as heavy as a railroad locomotive, and they were extremely proud of their wind tunnels. But to me, there was something else that was much more impressive. The chicken gun. All right, in the Vietnam War, apparently they had some really fast, low-flying planes that they discovered were just getting pelted by birds. Large birds, small birds, all sizes of birds. And they would damage the planes and they would put the pilots' lives at risk. And so 
now they test them first with a chicken gun. It's this giant gun that shoots chickens. Now, not live chickens, but probably the kind that you buy at the grocery store. My son Porter used to think those were two entirely different things. Um, it shoots chickens over 700 miles per hour at windshields to test them to see if they can withstand the force. Isn't that so interesting? I mean, our national security depends on men shooting chickens at planes because they had to prove that it could withstand these types of hardships. And so as Genesis chapter 22 opens, we see that God has designed a test. Just as they were testing the windshields of the plains, God is going to test Abraham. Now, of course, Abraham is not told at the outset that this is a test. But we are. And knowing the many, many challenges that this story provides um, in today's modern culture, I am grateful that we are told at the outset that we can put our minds at ease. This is a test. It's like knowing that the city of Capel tests their outdoor warning sirens on the first Wednesday of every month. When it comes around this week, we won't be fearfully huddling our children indoors. Instead, we're going to be grateful that the system has been tested and that it's been proven reliable so that we can rely on it when we really need it. Well, in the same way, Genesis 22 warns us well in advance that God tests our faithfulness. Now, already in the 10 chapters since we picked up Abraham's story, we've seen him fail this kind of test multiple times already. He lied twice about Sarah's identity. He tried to take a shortcut with Hagar. But this time, God ups the ante. Abraham has learned from his past mistakes. He's ready. So we can tell from the very first verse of Genesis 22 that Abraham has now established an intimate friendship with God. God calls Abraham by name, and Abraham hears. That's no small feat, and Abraham responds. And do you notice the beginning and ending of what God says to Abraham here? It's just like God's original call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Go to a place I will show you. This is a test of our faithfulness to say yes in advance to God saying, go, I'll show you later. And do you see how Abraham responds? Now, parents call out teenagers' names, and they don't even look up from their phone or video game, right? The most you get is distracted, yeah. But Abraham, he responds with this ready attentiveness to God's call. Here I am. It's almost like Abraham is giving a willing yes, sir, before he even hears the command. And the test he's about to receive is no easy one. God is showing what will truly be required of Abraham if he's going to father a nation that will bless the world. Now, the first part of Abraham's test is this. God requires full surrender. If you're taking notes, full surrender. When what God asks of Abraham is unthinkable, repulsive, cruel, right? As a mother, this is a really hard story for me to accept. Now, if I try to place myself and my child in the story, I begin to ask some really hard questions about the character of God. So let's get some of those cleared out of the way before we get too deep into it. First of all, our culture is radically different from Abraham's. Child sacrifice was common among the pagan religions that surrounded him. It was a way of appeasing the gods. And so maybe this is what Abraham assumed God was like. 
All Abraham knew about God was God's direct revelation to him. He didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have the Ten Commandments that tell us God shall not kill. And so although Abraham certainly would have grieved the command to sacrifice his son, it would not have been as shocking as it is to us today. Now the fact that God will come back and prevent Abraham from completing the sacrifice shows definitively that God values human life. Our children's lives from birth all the way until their last breath matter to God. God is pro-life from womb to tomb. Now the second thing we want to address up front is that we naturally focus on the unimaginable sorrow of losing a child. To any parent, that alone would be an unspeakable tragedy. And naturally, our minds focus on that because it's so painful and so personal. However, the writer wants us to think of something else. In ancient culture, they followed the law that the firstborn child would inherit all of the parent's land and estate. And then the firstborn child would take care of the rest of the family. But I like how Tim Keller explains this. Throughout the law of Genesis, we see God undermining this law. He dealt with Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. He'll deal with Jacob, not Esau. Now, all ancient cultures, they look to the firstborn to be the savior of the family. But God contradicts that. God says, the firstborn is mine. The firstborn cattle is sacrificed to God. The firstborn fruits are sacrificed. In the Passover, the firstborn child's life will be forfeited unless, unless it is redeemed, unless a lamb is slain. So what God was saying is that there is a debt of sin that every family owes to me. This is important context to understand how Abraham would have understood this command. Now the third thing to remember is that Isaac is no ordinary child. And I don't mean that he was an extra cute baby or he was a gifted and talented or he was the best football team player. No, his descendants would become God's chosen people. Through them, God planned to bless the whole world. So all of Abraham's journey until now, all of the promises that God had made for this child, all of the future hope for God's people depended upon Isaac's survival. If Isaac died, every promise that God has made becomes useless, impossible even. The future of Abraham and all of the generations after him who were to bless the whole world evaporates like the morning mist. So what God was really asking Abraham to surrender as a sin offering was the blessings that God had promised him. Look with me at verse 2. Then God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And, and with each description, the drama intensifies and we feel the crushing weight of God's command. In fact, there's a rabbi named Rashi who's considered um, one of the greatest commentators on the Hebrew Bible. And he suggests that maybe there was an internal dialogue going on between Abraham and God. And he describes it like this. God says, take your son, Abraham said to God, I have two sons. God said to him, you're only one. And he said, this one is an only one to his mother, and this one is an only one to his mother. God said to him, whom you love. 
Abraham said in reply, I love both of them. God said to him, Isaac. God leaves no room here for doubt or misinterpretation. Once again, God is undermining the law of the firstborn. God's doing something different with Ishmael. The debt of sin is owed by Isaac, the child of the promise, the future hope of God's people. That's the one. By saying it this way in verse 2, Abraham would know that God understood what it would cost him to obey. This is the test of full surrender. Would Abraham cling to the child that God had given him, the child on which the future was based, or would he continue to obey? Remember that question that we asked at the beginning, can I trust God with everything? Now, I am so curious what that night must have been like for Abraham. Did he question God at all? Did he tell Sarah about God's command? Or did he decide to protect her from that horrible knowledge? Did he let Isaac stay up past bedtime so they could have a few extra moments together? Did faith eventually override his fear? Or did he spend the long night awake and trembling in his bed? We don't get any answers to these questions. All we see is that when morning comes, Abraham immediately and unquestioningly obeys. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. So he sets out on this three-day journey for the land of Moriah. Now, three days is a long time when you're facing the task that was set before Abraham. Every minute that ticks by is another chance to either bail out or to strengthen your resolve. Every step in that direction is another small surrender. Now, what about you? Have you been through this same type of long, slow journey where you don't know if God is going to provide Maybe you don't know whether the struggle that you're in will have a happy ending. Are you losing faith? Elizabeth Elliot tells the story about watching a shepherd in Wales who was dipping his sheep into a vat of antiseptic. Now, it's for the sheep's protection, right? To protect him from parasites or infections. But the sheep was struggling. Every time the shepherd would try to push his head under, the sheep would just fight it. And she realized... Sometimes the shepherd who is trying to save us feels like he is trying to kill us. I wonder if Abraham felt that way. Sometimes the shepherd who's trying to save us feels like he is trying to kill us. Have you ever felt that way? When we feel like we might lose faith, let's remember Abraham. He didn't know what God had in store for him at the end of this three-day journey. But he knew that God cares more about uh, that boy and Abraham's future than Abraham ever could. And so he surrendered to God's plan, knowing that God is good and faithful and that God's plan is the best. I imagine with every step of that three-day journey, Abraham was just repeating, whatever happens, God is enough. Whatever happens, God is enough. But the test is not over. God's going to test Abraham in one more area. God also requires Abraham's full trust. 
So after three excruciatingly long days of travel, probably the longest three days of Abraham's life, the dreaded moment has arrived. Look at verse 5. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now when I first read this verse, I thought Abraham was being deceptive. Let's just call it like it is. I thought he was a big fat liar. He just didn't want to tell his servants or his son the terrible thing that he was about to do. So he lied and said it was worship. But as I thought about all of Abraham's words and actions over the next few verses, I realized that Abraham truly meant exactly what he said. He couldn't have understood what God was doing or why it had to happen this way. But he trusted fully in God's goodness and faithfulness. He had seen God do the impossible before, and he showed full confidence that God could do the impossible again. And with that kind of trust in God's character, his natural response was to worship. Abraham can say with all sincerity and certainty, we will come back. See, he had two irreconcilable truths in mind. One, Abraham knew that God had planned the future around Isaac. And two, God was asking him to sacrifice Isaac. He didn't know how God was going to work it out, but he knew that God would. And as he learned, as we learned a few weeks ago, it's best to let God's plan unfold rather than trying to work it out on our own. So he left the how and the why to God. Now, Scripture tells us there's two possibilities that Abraham probably had in mind. For the first one, look with me at verse 8. Isaac has just spoken up for the first time. Now, think about this. Isaac is a, probably a teenager. He's young. He's strong. Abraham is well over 100, right? He's, uh, if Isaac smelled any kind of trouble, I, Isaac could outrun him, outwit him, even just push him over, right? But he doesn't. He's heard Abraham's stories throughout the years, and he's seen Abraham's faith. So Isaac is in sync with Abraham and with the God, uh, his relationship with God. So Abraham assures Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, at every moment in the next few verses, I find myself holding my breath do you hold your breath too? I'm holding my breath, waiting for God to interrupt this terrible sequence of events. They arrived at the place. Abraham built the altar. He arranged the wood. He bound his son, Isaac, whom we have to assume didn't resist. He laid him on top of the wood. He reaches out his hand and he grabs the butcher knife. How has he gotten all the way to this point? How is he not completely freaked out? The book of, of Hebrews tells us that uh, Abraham assumed God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. But whether Abraham expected God to stop him at the very last instant or to reverse the deed once it was done, he was determined to fully follow through with trusting and obeying God. So before we resolve this tension, before we stop holding our breath, let's once again pause to reflect upon our own situation with Abraham's knife held in midair, we can ask ourselves this question. What am I holding on to? If I think about those things that mean the most to me, is my grip too tight? 
Is there anything about which I say to God, this is mine? Your heart says, I have to have this to be happy. I have to have this to feel important. I have to have this to have meaning in my life. Maybe it's my child's future or a comfortable lifestyle or job security or a particular relationship. Do I love any of these things more than God? Can I trust God with everything? We have a natural tendency to hold on tightly to God's blessings. But when we focus too much on the blessing itself, we miss the source of the blessing. God says, all you have to have is me. Whatever happens, God is enough. I want Abraham's unshakable faith that God is enough. Not God's blessings are enough or God's provision is enough. God is enough. So I can let go of my grip on God's blessings. Abraham demonstrates full trust in a God who stands behind his promises. And so with that trust in God, he is willing to give up all he stands to gain, all he loves, and all he hopes for. He can say, whatever happens, God is enough. And this is a true act of worship, Abraham's willingness to obey without reservation. And now, finally, we can stop holding our breath because at the last possible moment, God intervenes. As we see from Abraham's happy ending, God provides, the testing is over, God provides full blessing. Abraham has passed the test. Another call comes from heaven, this time with more urgency. Abraham, Abraham! And once again, knife still suspended in midair, Abraham gives his obedient response, here I am. And then in verse two, 12, sorry, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. This phrase, now I know, stands out to me. Doesn't God know everything? Sure, I have to assume that God knows that Abraham would be willing to go through with it. But there's plenty of evidence throughout Scripture that God desires us to act on our faith and worship regardless of the fact that God already knows our hearts. God knows what we need and may already be in the process of providing it, but God asks us to pray anyway. God wants us to praise even when God already knows how we feel. God asks us to express our faith and love. It's the same thing when I ask my son Porter about his day at school. We like to play this game called Two Truths and a Lie to hear all the details about each other's day. Now, the truth is I have other ways of knowing, right? If it had gone horribly wrong, I would have heard about it from the teacher. And if I wanted all the details, I could have gone to his sister Sophia and asked her about it. But because I treasure the shared conversation, I want to hear it directly from Porter himself. In that same way, God treasures this interaction with us. Even though God already knows everything that's on our hearts, there's a difference between head knowledge and experience. Isn't there? God wants us to declare it and to demonstrate it. It honors God and it pleases God when we prove our love through full surrender and full trust. Now the good news is that this proof is not one-sided. For all that God requires of us, full surrender and full trust, 
God provides so much more. God provided the sacrifice for Abraham. A ram appeared in the thicket, and Abraham didn't even have to ask. He knew God had provided the sacrifice. Let me tell you a story. One time at family devotions, Martin Luther was telling this story of Abraham and Isaac to his family. He painted the picture. He said, Then Abraham bound him and laid him upon the wood. The father raised the knife. The boy bared his throat. If God had slept an instant, the lad would have been dead. I could not have watched. And his wife, Katie, was aghast. I cannot believe it, she said. God would not have treated his son like that. But Katie, Luther replied, he did. Just as Abraham was willing to give up his only son, his beloved son, so God would now send his one and only, his beloved son on our behalf. Just as Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain of Moriah, Jesus would carry the wood of the cross upon his back up the hill of Golgotha. But here's the all-important difference. As God's only beloved son hangs there on the cross, if we hold our breath to wait for intervention, for the voice from heaven to stop the sacrifice, we're going to be holding our breath forever. The sacrifice was the intervention. God the Father did not withhold his only son. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Out of his great grace and love for us, God did the impossible. Oh, I messed that up. Hang on. Start over. Out of his great grace and love for us, God did the unthinkable in order to achieve the impossible. All right, in the greatest substitution of all time, God gave up his one and only son for our sin. He became the sacrifice. He was crucified on our behalf so that we could live. And in a final triumph over death and a final promise of blessing to those of us who would follow after Jesus, after three long days of waiting, God brought Jesus back from the dead. So now we can have a relationship with God here in this life and in the eternity to come. And nothing can separate us from that unconditional love. So can I trust God with everything? God asks for full surrender and full trust. But when we trust in God's goodness and faithfulness, we will see that God has a greater plan in mind for us. The way of full blessing through his son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled and amazed that you would send your son, Jesus, on our behalf. Lord, as unthinkable as that kind of sacrifice is, Lord, we are so grateful that our debt of sin has been paid, that the path to a relationship with you has already been paved Lord, that we can come to you in full surrender and full trust and know that whatever happens, you are enough. Lord, would you help us to release our grip on those things that we're holding on to, Lord, and to trust that your way 
is best because you love us. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.